one. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Cover. I'm your host, John Robb, with my very, very good, great co-host, Jeff Ayers. Jeff, how you doing? Doing fantastic. How you doing? I'm good. Hey, we're back here. We took a little bit of a break because uh, I was on vacation, went to Japan, got back last Thursday, and so it's great to be able to come here and have guest Robert Masello on talking about his latest book, the Jekyll Revelation, of course, you might know Roberts also from the Einstein Prophecy, the Romanov Cross, the Medusa Amulet. Uh, those are his historical fiction books, and of course, there's much others. Make sure you can also visit robertmasello.com, M-A-S-E-L-L-O, for a lot more information on what he's got writing. So, you ready to get into it? Looking forward to this. I love his stuff. No time like the present. So, here we go. So, let's welcome our guest onto the show Robert, we want to thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, and thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, let's jump right in here. Yeah, (laughs) let's jump right in here to your latest book, Um, Historical Fiction with Some Supernatural Twists. And you've taken us back in here to August 31st, 1888, with the latest book, The Jekyll Revelation. What do you got going on in here? Wow. As usual, I have a lot going on. Um, Most of my books come about because I notice something weird, a coincidence in history or a confluence of events, and it catches my eye, and I think, gee, I wonder if I could make a story out of that, taking the real facts, the real people, and weaving it into some kind of a fictional tale. And in this case, I happen to just be kind of reading. I read widely, and I read a lot of history. And this is a weird thing that I noticed. On August 31st, 1888, which you just mentioned, that was the night that the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde opened at the Lyceum Theater in London's West End. Uh, This was a a version of the book that had been turned into a play that starred an actor named Richard Mansfield, um, who was sensational in the role. It opened on that night, and it it was just a huge sensation. It was kind of like the exorcist of its day. They had nurses stationed in the lobby. Um, There were pictures all over town of Richard Mansfield making the transformation from Dr. Jekyll to the hideous Mr. Hyde. Um, It was this big event. But what's really weird is that exactly when that play opened, later that night, Jack the Ripper struck for the first time. And Jack the Ripper continued to strike during the length and the run of the play. In fact, Robert Louis Stevenson was considered a suspect as Jack the Ripper, and so was Richard Mansfield, the actor, because the police theorized that only but somebody who could concoct a tale like this, Robert Louis Stevenson, or somebody who could embody that hideous transformation into that horrible creature, Mr. Hyde, could possibly be committing these heinous crimes in London over in Whitechapel, another area. Um, that really interested me, as did the fact and then I'll finish this part, but when Stevenson abruptly packed up his family, including his mother and the maid and everybody, 
and left England never to return, to travel the earth and winding, winding up, in fact, on a mountaintop in Samoa, the farthest remote region he could reach, the Jack the Ripper crimes stopped. They ran for the length of the play, and once he was gone, they didn't happen again. And nobody to this day has actually solved that, despite what Patricia Cornwell said in her book. It's still a subject of debate, who was Jack the Ripper. Um, why the contemporary parts of your novel, though? Why not just keep it in that time period? That's a great act. That's a great question. <laughs> because <laughs> don't think that I and the editors didn't go around and around. I kept saying, you know, I could just tell this story <laughs> um, in 1888 and 1890, you know, in that era. Um, there is a contemporary, contemporary storyline that goes, the book goes back and forth. This is kind of a, a thing I've done in other books of mine, too. Blood and Ice was like that. The Medusa Amulet was like that. So was the Romanoff Cross, come to think of it. All of them have a contemporary storyline. Uh, the editors and the publishers seem to think that that gets people more excited if they're also reading about a present-day drama. Um, and in this case, I was able to carry the Jekyll and Hyde and Ripper story forward quite easily in one respect to Topanga Canyon, California, which is where the other contemporary storyline takes place. And that happened because Robert Louis Stevenson married an American woman who was about 10 years older than he was. Her name was Fanny, and she had a child named Lloyd, uh, who became Robert Louis Stevenson's stepson. So they were basically Americans. And, in fact, um, Robert Louis Stevenson kind of raised Lloyd Osborne and even helped him try to launch his own writing career. Lloyd Osborne did get his name on a few books. But Lloyd Osborne was an American, and he moved back to this area of California. And he, in fact, died in Glendale, California, as late as 1947. So that was kind of a natural way for that whole story of that family to have wound up here in a more current era. Now, Topanga Canyon, of course. Now, now, Topanga Canyon, you're from L.A. I'm from L.A., um, so I'm out in the Thousand Oaks. used to live in Calabasas, drove Topanga Canyon all the time. There's a lot of little nuances in Topanga Canyon. If people have never been to that area, just, just drive on old Topanga Canyon Road if you ever come out. It's a gorgeous drive. It's a scary drive at times, <laughs> but it's yes, a gorgeous yes. drive, and there's a, and there's a nice little city in the middle of it, and it's a really cool little find. Um, and there's still remnants of an internment camp there around Topanga Canyon. People don't know about that. God, Me too. No, been, I, I did not know about that. It's uh, been and vandalized I up and to down. all hell, yeah. but it's still out there. Yep. Wow. I wish I. Why didn't I talk to you earlier? I did not know about yeah. that. But I had been to Topanga Canyon many times. I had friends who lived out there, and yeah. But between us, I really think that people don't understand how much history and uh, and, and lore there is in California. They just you know they just think of the L.A. traffic and freeways and and hip clubs. But places like Topanga Canyon have wonderful history, not to mention all the rock and roll history in Topanga and Laurel Canyons. You know, all the bands from Buffalo Springfield to the Birds to the Mamas and the Papas, you know, that emerged yep. out of those canyons, um, which is another thing that I just, I just love about them. But you're right, too, when you say that it's scary. I mean, not only the hairpin turns and all of that at night sometimes, but, you know, it's, it's got a real funky vibe to it. You'll see $5 million houses next to ramshackle huts that look like the next wind is going to blow them over. And that's oh, yeah. to this day. I mean, and, and one of my favorite movies was also filmed there. 
um, Friday the 13th Part 4. The final chapter was filmed in Topanga Canyon, the house, mm-hmm. uh, the house that was there. So I was like, oh, I remember interviewing Corey Feldman, and he told me that. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. I had no idea it was filmed in Topanga Canyon. So, yeah, that was kind of interesting. I, and, but, again, it's just one of those little nuances that you mention it, and people are like, oh, and, but they're not really sure about it. But, you, but if you're listening, just Google. Look at the area and find out because it is a very, very cool area. And, it's one of those places you don't have to always go to the Walk of Fame. You can see the Hollywood sign wherever. Yeah, I see some stars. But you find yeah, those yeah. little areas, uh, pockets, and it's just a cool It's just a cool little place, of course, um, to kind of visit. But kind of back to the book. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, you know what else you could do, though, just before we leave that? What I did some nights when I wanted to get into the mood of writing Topanga Canyon for the book you go on YouTube, and there are guys who put, like, cameras on their motorcycle helmets. Oh, yeah. And they drove up and down the length of Topanga Canyon. <laughs> yeah. So you can, cool. you can get a kind of a glimpse of the whole area because they'll, they'll run 15, 20 minutes at a stretch on YouTube just driving up and down that road. Yeah, because it, it, well, it, for other people, it connects the 101 to the PCH. So it's a quick way to kind of cut from the 101, and you just cut through the mountains, and you just go straight down into Malibu. Um, and that's where where you wind up is right in, is around the around the outskirts of Malibu is where it ends. But you keep going straight and you just fall right into the Pacific Ocean, and so yeah. it is a really cool drive. Now, yeah, when when you decided, I mean, kind of laying that groundwork of okay, you know, with the Jack the Ripper killings and Robert Louis Stevenson and and him kind of being around in the case, was that part of the plan when you decided to craft the book? Or were you like, you know, this was just like a great byproduct that kind of happened after you started writing? It's a little of both. Um, when I start a book, and I'm, and to all of those who are listening, <laughs> who are going to be writers, don't listen to me. <laughs> I mean, like, write an outline. Um, I, I wish I could outline, and, you know, it's the responsible thing to do, and it will keep you from many nights of staring at the ceiling going, what? Have I gotten myself into? Um, but I kind of start on a wing and a prayer and a notion. And what I had was that that coincidence that I was talking about earlier about the play opening and Jack the Ripper striking. I wanted to do that milieu plus the fact that, you know, the family saga ended up in, of all places, Glendale in this area of California. So I kind of throw a lot of things into a big pot. And then I start writing and I find the story as I go along. Um and it, what interests me is that I get surprised along the way, too. I never really know what is going to happen to whom. Um, I don't always know who's going to wind up living and who's going to wind up dead by the end of the book. Um, I think if I did, I'd be too bored to write it. Um, so that I kind of go along. There's a great quote, by the way, from E.L. Doctorow, one of my favorite writers. Um, and Doctorow said, writing a novel is like driving a car at night. You can only see as far ahead as your headlights allow, but somehow you still wind up getting where you're going. Uh, That's a paraphrase. Um, But the idea is I can only see like 100 yards ahead at a time, Um, and I just keep writing, and then I see what what is developing in the course of the story, Um, and, you know, who is it going to be that ultimately, in fact, I think that my book, I think my book solves the mystery of who was Jack the Ripper, but I'm not going to say who. Um, but I sort of had a different person in mind when I started writing it. And then as I was writing, I thought, no, no, it would probably be so-and-so. And, and what I try to do, and I don't know, a lot of writers like you know, Dan Simmons, whose work I adore, 
Um, I don't know how exactly he works, but I read and read and read, and I try to get as much of the real history in as I can. I try to stay as true to the historical record, to the chronologies, to the characters, as is possible, but you do have to like bend some things just to make your plot work and to make things more concise. Um, but otherwise, you know, people reading my books, you know, I would say that you know, 90, 95% of the history you're reading is right, um, uh, especially in this one, maybe a little less so in the Einstein prophecy. But in the Jekyll Revelation, almost everything that I say uh, is true. Um, and then, of course, I've had to embellish and do some other things with it. But uh, it, 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 it's true to the historical record and true to how, how the book was actually um, even written. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you know this story already, but um, Robert Louis Stevenson used to go to bed at night and call upon what he called his brownies. And his brownies were little imaginary creatures that he imagined did the creative work for him while he slept. They would run around finding good story ideas for him, and if he was lucky, when he woke up in the morning, he would have a story in his head and he'd be able to quickly get to his desk and start jotting it down. And in fact, he says that he was having a dream, and, and uh, he woke up, and his, his wife was shaking him. Fanny said, wake up, wake up, and he said, why did you wake me? I was dreaming a fine bogey tale. And what he was dreaming was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And he felt that his brownies had done a great job that night. So he jotted it down. He wrote an early draft of the book, um, which his wife Fanny hated. She thought he'd somehow missed the point of the whole tale. Um, And he threw it on the fire. I don't know why writers do that. Don't ever throw anything on the fire. If you got to, throw it in the back of the closet, you know, but don't burn it. Anyway, he burned it, and um, then he was prevailed upon by Lloyd and Fanny to, to redo it, and supposedly he rewrote it in six days, which I think, by the way, is malarkey, because you, you just couldn't physically write a book. Even, even though the book is short, it's still too long to do that. But supposedly he wrote it in a very short time all over again, and that's the version that we have today. Interesting. There's another novel out there right now that um... – says basically that he did not burn that manuscript and it was hidden away and oh. what it had was the real formula that caused the transformation and then somebody that, finds wait a it, of there's a novel that somebody wrote that said that yes or that's a theory no no that's that's a novel that they're basically saying that and then it went from there it was sort of like a sort of like a monster novel essentially that oh. someone yeah so hmm. that, that's, I like that's really story. interesting yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, because uh, it's, it's not far off from what I was doing too, um, which was coming up with the, you know, what would what would really have set the scene for that. And in my in my in my book, I mean, I was thinking that for all those years, because Stevenson, is, as you guys know, was a very unhealthy guy. Um, he had consumption his whole life, tuberculosis. He was in and out of sanitariums in Saranac Lake, New York, and Davos, Switzerland, which is where I set a lot of my book. Um, and winding up, in fact, in Samoa, he was always searching for some place where his lungs wouldn't be hemorrhaging. Sometimes he thought it would be a warm climate. Sometimes it was thought to be that you had to be in a very cold, arid climate. So that's why he'd be up in the mountains. But his whole life he was subjected to various medical treatments and procedures and experiments and potions and concoctions. And I thought it's not so surprising that he should base a novel then based upon somebody taking something, you know, drinking a potion and becoming something else. 
That's true. Interesting. And uh, Interesting. nowadays brownies would uh, have uh, weed in it probably, but that's another uh, yeah, and it's legal in California, baby. <laughs> and it would be legal, legal in California yes. and Washington. And you know yeah, what I love? Go. I love when I do these books. I love finding stuff that I really didn't expect to, and you just turn over. Truth truly is stranger than fiction. When I was writing yeah. about the Lyceum Theater where the where Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was appearing as a play, guess who the stage manager was of that theater at that time? It was Bram Stoker. Kidding. Oh, jeez. Isn't that great? So I was able to write some scenes in the book where Robert Louis Stevenson meets the young theater manager, Bram Stoker, who was, in fact, writing horror stories at the time, but he hadn't written Dracula yet. So I have a scene where where Stevenson and Bram Stoker are talking, and Bram Stoker is, like, you know, sort of so impressed with meeting Robert Louis Stevenson. He's going, boy, I wish I could write a book like that. If only I had a great idea. (laughs) And and Stevenson's saying, saying, yeah, you're young. Give it time. You'll come up with something. (laughs) Which, as we all know, well, became Dracula. I, well, I have a question about your research. Since mm-hmm. you find all these wonderful things, how long do you research before you actually say, okay, i got to stop researching and write the book? And how much of the research actually ends up in the book? Uh, a lot of good questions there. Well, I spent 21 years researching each book. <laughs> and, uh, no, I mean, the thing is, you, you really could. And that's a piece of advice that I, that's a question I get asked a lot about writers' conferences and things. Because I meet a lot of young writers um, who want to do the kind of stuff that I do, which you know has some history and art and science backgrounds. And, and the biggest failing they have, including a young screenwriter that I took a walk with just about a week ago, is that they get lost in the research, you know, and which is easy to do because it's fun and it's so interesting. And you're not writing anything that's not writing is fun. Um, so they'll end up spending, in this particular case, the screenwriter. I talked to him two years ago. He was just starting a, uh, a script about the French Revolution. He still hasn't started writing it because he's still researching the French Revolution. Now, I re-researched the French Revolution also, uh, but I did it for the book uh, The Medusa Amulet. But again, what I did was I picked out like two or three really authoritative books, like a biography of Marie Antoinette by Lady Antonia Frazier, things like that. I read them, and then I just stopped because you could read yourself blind, and you could read forever. So I just try to find a couple of sources that I like. Um, that I think are trustworthy. I read those. I really try to absorb as much as I can, and then I write that section of the book that has to do with that history, because otherwise you're going to get lost. So I really do try to like keep it to a minimum and read only exactly what I need to read when I need to read it. This, by the way, gets you into a lot of trouble with your friends, all of whom always want you to read their manuscripts in progress, and I always have to tell them I can't. I just can't. I don't let anything into my head that isn't germane to the book I'm writing. Um, and uh, they can get kind of, you know, upset about that, irritated. But it's the only way is to just focus on exactly what I'm doing and and just read carefully in that era. Because also, I mean, I do these books one after the other, and I kind of do a memory wipe after it's over. I mean, I will erase all that I, I had. I certainly had a lot about Einstein in my head for the Einstein prophecy and Oppenheimer and, and Princeton in 1944-45. But I kind of like just washed that away when I did the Robert Louis Stevenson you know, project, this one, the Jekyll, because I just thought, okay, now I've got to be in the 1880s in, uh, in London. Was there, well, there was another part to you know, that question, I think. But I, oh, just oh. how much actually ends up in the novel? 
Oh, that's interesting. Um, that is a good part. Um, you know what? I don't. I, don't, I wouldn't know how to put a percentage on it, but most of it doesn't. It informs the novel in some way while I'm writing. But what I really hate and hope not to do, and I tried not to do it in the Jekyll Revelation, and I hope I succeeded, but I can't stand the info dumps that you get in some of these books where the author suddenly just can't bear to part with the fact that he knows so much more than you do about all of this and that, you know, that they put all the irrelevant stuff in just to kind of show off and because they've got it. My feeling is the book should read as a book, you know, at whatever clip it can, you know, move along, but that the reader should never be thrown out of the period. You should always feel that you're still thoroughly immersed and that only what you need to know, the local terminology, the things of the day, you know, is there. I once read a book in which um, it was a historical novel, and the, the characters went to Delmonico's in New York for lunch. All you needed to say was what they had, but instead the writer went through the whole menu. I mean, he sort of stopped to, like, give you the whole menu at Delmonico's, all the different things on it. And I thought, no, I, I don't need to know all of that. If you just tell me two or three things that the peop, the characters are eating – That'll give me an idea of what the place is like, and I don't need to know the rest. But that's me. well, you know, when you sat down, you mentioned that you can't read other stuff because you don't want your head to kind of get filled. There's, um, you know, one of my favorite guitar players, Michael Schenkner, says he listens to no other music for that simple fact that he does not want to be tainted in the stuff that he's creating. And he goes, there's no reason for me to listen to other stuff for the simple fact that I'm creating my own art and my own music, and he doesn't want to kind of be tainted. So you're in good practice. You know, you're in, you're in good company with Michael Schenkner, um on that one. Yeah, yeah. I, I certainly understand him. I mean, I will, when I finish a book, that's when I go on, like, vacation. When a book is done, I will sometimes, you know, take two, three, four months even, you know, depending on what I can afford, and then I will just try to, like, read some of the books that everybody else is talking about and stuff. Because, you know, I'll go to dinners and people go, oh, Robert's a writer. Well, you must have enjoyed The Goldfinch. You must have enjoyed the new book by Jonathan Safran Foer. You must have enjoyed you know? And I'm thinking, I haven't read any of them. You know, people start <laughs> to think, yeah, he calls himself a writer. He never reads. And I want to say, no, I read all the time, but I've been reading Robert Louis Stevenson's letters to W.E. Henley. Anybody want to talk about those? Because I know all about that. <laughs> Which, exactly. by the way, is one interesting thing in the Jekyll Revelation. I don't know if you – but Robert Louis Stevenson was one reason why I also wanted to write the book. Robert Louis Stevenson's best friend was W.E. Henley, the um, uh, magazine editor and, among other things, poet and essayist uh, of his day. And W.E. Henley is the guy who wrote the poem Invictus, you know, uh, I'm the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. That That famous poem that everybody knows was written by W.E. Henley, who was a, a guy who also suffered. He had a – cancer of the bone and he had a leg removed um so he hobbled along on a crutch and he became the model stevenson even said this for long john silver in the book treasure island and i just i just like the visual of these two guys stalking jack the ripper this this tall gangly tubercular writer robert louis stevenson with long stringy hair and bulging eyes right. looked like a scarecrow right. And right beside him, this stumpy guy with a big red beard and one leg. <laughs> I thought it was no, a great no, visual. Now, I want to say, because you, you've, you've written a lot of nonfiction books, but your mm -hmm. first fiction book, typically when people write that, that's kind of the story that they kind of had in their head that they wanted to get out, that, that had to be written. And yours had nothing to do with historical fiction. 
talk a little um, bit about why, you know, that kind of maybe came out. Uh, I'm talking about the book Private Demons. Oh, you know what? There were actually, uh, yeah, there was Private Demons, which was, you know, <laughs> my take on the emptying of Phnom Penh and the ancient Naga legends <laughs> of Cambodia. <laughs> you know what cracked me up about writing that book was that, and, and to this day I don't quite know why I wrote it, but um, I wrote that book and the reviews, which were, you know, respectable, but the one thing they all agreed on, whether they liked the story or not, was I was a great Southeast Asia hand. I clearly must have worked for the CIA or served in Vietnam or something like that. And let me tell you, I, I haven't been any further than Hawaii. You know, I mean, it's just, it was all from books. I had a book about Angkor Wat, and I studied the pictures. And but always, it, I think I give, I think I write better about places I've never been, at least more convincingly than places that I have been. But actually, there was there were a couple of novels before that. There was a, the very first novel I wrote was a little closer to home because it was uh, it was called The Spirit Wood, and it, you know, it's still for sale on um, uh, some website. I can't remember. Where, uh, uh, Open Road has it. Open Road Integrated Media sells it, and um, that book was closer to my experiences. It was about. Several people, the hero inherits a big estate out on uh, Oyster Bay, Syosset, that, that area of Long Island. Um, and it, it drew on Greek mythology. Um, it was uh, He was a guy of Greek ancestry, and he discovers over the course of the book that he's not just uh, of Greek ancestry. He's actually uh, a satyr. Um, and uh, that's kind of a surprise to him because he thought he was a graduate student in English literature. Um, so that one actually drew on my own experiences more. It was set in one time period today out on Long Island and in New York and um, you know, featured people who were impecunious grad students. That was a life I understood and knew. Well, now, Robert, we've got to take a short break, but we want to know, would you, do you want to come back after the break and keep talking with us? Do you still have time? Yeah, sure, happily. Yeah, yeah i got plenty of vodka. Okay, good. Here. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> that's good. Hey, and, you know, I got plenty of brownies. So let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with uh, author Robert Masello and, again, talking more about, you know, the Jekyll Revolution and get into some other things about him. So in the meantime, you can take a gander at this.
So welcome everybody back here after the break. We want to thank you, of course, for sticking around. We also want to thank Robert for hanging around. We want to let you know that all of our shows this year on Suspense Radio are brought to you by Kensington Books, so please make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information. The latest issue of the magazine and out is out. You can email editor at suspensemagazine.com, and I will ship you over an issue so you can check out that. We are also looking for your votes um, for the best of 2016. You have until November 22nd to send in your favorite books, in certain categories of like cozy and thriller and mystery and, and historical fiction and those to send them into us uh, on who you had the best books of 2016. We'll compile all that and all go in the magazine at the end of the year in December with our best of, and we'll see who is the Crimson, Crimson Scribe Award winner this year, which only goes to one book, regardless of, uh, of any of the genres. It's just one book per year. One author gets it, and that's it. And uh, last year's winner was I believe, Lisa Jackson, I think. <laughs> I forget. Oh, no. Um, oh, shit. So I had to tip my tongue. <laughs> Kelly Armstrong won last year. That's who it was. Kelly Armstrong was the winner last year. So let's welcome here our guest back again, Robert Mastello, and he was talking about the Jekyll Revelation, along his latest book, again, along with many other different things. Go to robertmastello.com, M-A-S. E L L O dot com for more information. So now, Robert, the first thing when people are gonna go there, they're gonna kind of see that you kinda of have fiction and nonfiction. They're gonna see that mm-hmm. and the, that's the first thing I kind of noticed. And when you see those four fiction books, Jekyll Revelation, Einstein Prophecy, Romanov Cross, the Medusa Amulet, the first thing you think of is, Oh, this is the start of like a series, kind of like a Cotton Malone, which is historical fiction that Steve Barry writes and yeah. But they're not. They're all standalones. So give us the thought process of why you decided to kind of have them all standalone instead of going the more traditional route now and have a series. I think the main reason I did it was I guess I was afraid of getting rich and famous. Um, <laughs> it would have made absolute sense to do a follow-up to one of those books. And don't think editors haven't you know beaten me about the head about that for years. Because when I wrote Blood and Ice, which was a book set in present-day Antarctica and in the Crimean War um, in the 1850s, I mean, again, I went to lunch. In fact, it was funny. I remember this. Now, I went to lunch in New York with the editor at uh, Random House and my, and my agent, and and uh, the editor was saying, uh, "What are you writing next?" And you know, I said, "Yeah, I don't know. It's going to be something else, completely different." And <laughs> and my agent was. I thought it was an accident at first. My agent was kicking me under the table, um, like. Why don't you come up with something using the same protagonist? Um, and it's just something I generally don't think about. I only once did do it, now that I do look back. I wrote two books called Vigil and Bestiary. Um, and I wrote Vigil, and Vigil, I must say, you know, was about, uh, let's see, it was set in present-day New York, and it was about uh, an ancient angel that gets loose and creates actually uh, not good things but mayhem in the city. Um, and the book did did quite well, and as a result, I did succumb to the blandishments of the publishers, and I did write a sequel called Bestiary. Um, and uh, that was the only time that I actually did a book that was a sequel. The problem was that when they said, we want you to do a sequel, I said, well, darn, if I'd known I was going to be doing a sequel, I would have made the protagonist a lot more interesting in the first place. You know, instead of making him just a, a guy from suburban Chicago or something, which is where I'm from, 
I thought I would have made him something more exotic than that, you know, if I knew I had to live with him longer. Um, right. And even though Vigil had done very well, Bestiary did not do as well for various reasons. Uh, you know, it could have been the book, but I also think the title was confusing to people, and and the cover art also lost them. Um, so I ended up – I was going to write a third in that series, and I still get letters from readers once in a while going, so what happens next? You know, what happened to the child they had? Um, but uh, I couldn't really find a home for that third book. So then I started writing these standalone books. And as you know, I mean, you guys have, have seen or read them. I mean, they tend to be pretty long. My books are, are anywhere from, you know, 400 to some 500 pages, that sort of thing. Um and usually they're kind of a complete stories. Uh, you know, in, in the Einstein prophecy, the book ends, uh, Einstein is dead, and I don't know quite what else I could really have done in the 1940s and 50s um, with the particular protagonist uh, and his love affair that I had. Um, I kind of like starting all over again in a whole, you know, researching something new, getting a fresh take on it, getting maybe a slight adjustment to my tone, though I don't know how much I can adjust my style and tone at this point. I kind of write the way I do. I would love to write, you know, in a much uh, faster uh, clip, not only, you know, just getting the books done faster, but I'd like to write prose that that rips along uh, as some writers are, are able to do, and I admire that a lot. I take kind of a slower tone, and um, I write a more... I don't know, I guess you get lapidary style than than uh, some other writers. Um, but, um, you know, once I've done an era, I, I get I get really into it for a while, and then I'm just as happy to leave. I mean, Einstein, again, that was the, you know, 1944, 1945, set in Princeton, New Jersey, uh, a, a town I happen to know because I went to school there. And then the book before that, The Medusa Amulet, was that's the Italian Renaissance, the French Revolution, that covers a lot of ground up to the present day. Um, and then, as I mentioned, yeah, Blood and Ice, that was the uh, Crimean War in Antarctica, and the Romanov Cross. We, that goes back to what I was saying earlier. The Romanov Cross came about because I was sort of reading history, and I noticed that a couple things were interesting. The Spanish flu, which was the greatest plague ever to hit mankind, erupted at exactly the same time as the Romanov dynasty was ending with the slaughter in the basement in Ekaterinburg of Tsar Nicholas and uh, the, you know, his daughters, including Anastasia, the most famous. Um, so that was kind of in my head, like, that's kind of an interesting thing right there. Two, you know, calamities, you know, occurring at the same time, the Russian Revolution, the end of the Romanovs, the Spanish flu. And then I think what maybe triggered the rest of the story was an article I read, a couple things I read, but one in particular about Alaska. And it was talking about um, how all the toad, how all the telephone poles there are off kilter, and the foundations of the houses are collapsing, and that's because the permafrost there is starting to melt a little bit, and it's getting a little softer, and so you know roads are cracking, houses are falling over, um, poles are tilting, and then I read somewhere it said they're a little worried because you know what, a lot of victims of the Spanish flu were buried in Alaska, which was hit by it. And they're buried in very shallow graves because you couldn't dig very deep in Alaska. So they were dug maybe a foot or two deep at most. And these bodies might have been perfect containers, incubators, for the Spanish flu. There was a very, very, very slight possibility of anything like this happening. But the theory was, what if the Spanish flu, which we don't have a cure for, 
was still lying dormant in those bodies, which were now going to be thawed and exposed to the air again. And I thought, gee, that's a scary prospect. And, um, you know, I read about a cemetery there where that was happening. The gravestones were tilting over. Um, And I thought, once again, I start throwing things into this, this big stew pot, and after a while, I think, I think I've got enough in there to make something of a stew. And uh, so that book, again, you know, took place um, from the uh, viewpoint of, you know, the Russian royal family, Anastasia, uh, who plays a very big part in that book, along with Rasputin, the uh, advisor, the, the mad monk who took over control of the Russia, uh, all the Russias at some point, really, pretty much, because he was manipulating the Tsar and his wife. Um, and uh, and then a present-day story about uh, an epidemiologist uh, down on his luck taking a job there to investigate the uh, the bodies and to exhume them and make sure that the Spanish flu was not still vi- viable. Hmm. I think that's my cool. favorite book of yours, to be honest. No, thanks. I really like that book a lot. Yeah. Um, I'm making a note to myself, never travel to Alaska. Hold on here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think it's. I think the threat is really not there. But all I need is is just a little bit of a notion that, uh, well, this could happen. That would be sort of scary. Or what if? Um, I try to look down the road. It just. Uh, I'm not very good at it. But I try to look down the road when I'm planning a book and think, are there going to be a few elements there and a few scenes that I can come up with that are going to be sufficiently scary. I don't think that my books are, um, and maybe they should be more so, but I don't think they're particularly overloaded with that stuff. I, I dole it out fairly sparingly um, because I, th- I think it, it matters more that way. And I think that if scary things happen to people you don't care about, they're not as scary and they, they're not as powerful. So I'd rather spend much more of my time writing a book that seems almost like it's just a regular tale of people confronting normal problems that people confront in whatever era and then introduce the supernatural element into that. Well, you used to write just more straight supernatural. What was the catalyst for you to switch over to writing the historical thrillers? Huh, that's an interesting question. I never thought about it before. Yeah, when I was when I was uh when I was a younger man and living as a journalist in New York, um I was writing entirely different stuff. Um, I was writing for the Washington Post and New York Newsday and New York Magazine and places like that, doing a lot of journalism. And then I was also writing, this is going to be a complete contradiction to everything else in my career, but I was um, I wrote for many years a column in Mademoiselle Magazine called His. And I also moonlighted as a guy named Jake in Glamour Magazine. And I was the guy who wrote uh, columns about, you know, Jealousy, monogamy, why don't men call you back when they say they will? You know, it was, it was just a guy bearing his soul. Oh, that was me. you? That was me. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, shit, that was him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Great. I was that guy. And, and then I wrote a, a, a book of essays that kind of, you know, all together called What Do Men Want From Women, which was published by Ballantyne and did pretty well. Oh, um, can I answer that now or, or never mind? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, listen, I got a whole book out of that. So yeah, um, I bet. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't get a freaking encyclopedia series out of that. <laughs> so I actually, in fact, Publishers Weekly, there was a wonderful piece at the time because then I started writing these horror novels, and and Publishers Weekly ran a column about it saying, "How did Doctor Love become Doctor Death?" 
You know, it was like how I had made this conversion. And the reason was when I was done with the book, What Do Men Want From Women?, I was beholden to the publisher for one more book. Um, but I wasn't I wasn't really happy with the way they had marketed the book or distributed it. I thought it should have done better. So I wanted to go elsewhere. But my agent said, no, you owe them your next book. You have to at least show it to them first. So I wrote literally three pages. This is another era of publishing, by the way. I wrote three pages of a horror novel. And I gave those to my agent. And he said, what's this? I said, well, it doesn't say how much I have to show them, but that's there. There's There's the idea for my next book. He said, well, I can't show them three pages. I said, well, it doesn't say we can't, and I'll be out of the contract, and then we'll figure out what I do. Um, anyway, he took the three pages. He called me a week later, and he said, I've got good news, and i got bad news. He was from the South. And he said, uh, the good news is, Robert, they like those three pages. The bad news <laughs> is, I don't think you know how to write a novel. And um, I said, well, John, um, I read Middlemarch in college. I'm sure I could figure it out. <laughs> and so I wrote the horror novel, The Spirit Would, in fact, that was the one about, you know, grad students living on a scraps of money and then inheriting a state in Long Island, because that was all, you know, a world that I knew, except that I forgot to inherit anything. Um, mm-hmm. And then that book did pretty well, so I was asked to write another one. And that's how it sort of works, is you keep getting asked to write what's already succeeded. So I wrote uh, um Black Horizon, a novel about, uh, again, a struggling musician in New York City who discovers that he has this uncanny ability to travel between the living and the dead, this world and the next. And there was a reason why, in the course of the book, that was revealed. And in fact, again, it, now that I think about that book, which I haven't thought about in 100 years, um, it was called Black Horizon, and it was based on a very small piece I saw in like the New York Daily News or some one of those papers. And the article was about a woman who'd been um, in a terrible car accident, but she was like eight months pregnant or something. And they were able to keep her alive just long enough until they could safely deliver the baby. Maybe it was seven months pregnant. And then once the baby was born, they unplugged her because there was she couldn't be saved, but they were able to deliver the child. And I remember thinking, wow, that's interesting. You basically have a child that has been born from a dead mother. And how does she feel about that? Um, and that was the origin of that novel. It was just like, how would the mother have felt, like you know, being discarded like that? And this kid was was born not of a really living mother, but somebody who was just being kept alive on machines. Um, and he became the protagonist of that book. And again, I made him a struggling musician in New York because in those days I was doing some music uh, with a friend of mine from college. We were writing jingles. And uh, then I did one more novel, yeah, Private Demons, to which you had alluded, which was about Cambodia, which I guess the boat people and things like that were in the news at the time. And I thought, oh, let's let's explore supernatural elements from that part of the world. Uh, and then I didn't write novels for a long while. I wrote a bunch of nonfiction books, and I moved to California. I got married in New York and moved out here and got into television for a while. So that was kind of a whole other episode, writing for Charmed and Sliders and Poltergeist the Legacy, stuff like that. Um, and out of that, when that ended, kind of, I was, uh, you're getting more than you need to know, but I was in an accident, so I was in rehab for like a year. And when I got out of that, I didn't want to go back into television because I really wasn't capable of sitting there for all those hours in a room with the other writers. So I went back to writing novels, but, but I was able to now write a different kind of novel, which is these big historical thrillers. The last four or five books have been like that. 
And I'll tell you what really changed. This is only occurring to me now. What changed a lot of it was Google. Um, when I wrote my earlier novels, it was it was way back in like the 80s in New York. You did not have the internet. You did not have Google. You did. I had to spend days, weeks, hours in the New York City public libraries requesting books and reading, reading, reading to get the things right. And now it is an amazing world because when I'm writing this kind of a book, if I have to stop and check something, I can Google it. And you can reach yeah. people all over the world who can answer your questions about anything. It is amazing. I thought you might have said, now that you said that you wrote for Charmed, it kind of all made sense. You were probably like, look, I had to write a lot of horror scripts for Shannon Doherty. Give me a break. I mean, it's kind of how it all started. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, no, that, well, that's, that's, that's a whole other world. And I wrote a book about that called A Friend in the Business, which was about my adventures writing for television shows like those. Um, yeah. Just as advice be, you know, to, to other young writers who were, not that I was so young at that point, but other writers coming in for the first time to the television business, which is a uh, it's a whole other kind of writing. It's a whole other world. Um, the money is spectacular, but it's a collaborative kind of writing. If if you really want to hear your voice and your story told the way you want to tell it, then you got to write novels. If you want to make some money and you're, you want to see your stuff produced on television and you like the conviviality um, and the sociable aspect of writing for television where you're going to be in a room with five or six other writers most of the time, then television is for you. Now, the funny thing is earlier in the interview you, you said for young writers, you kind of said, hey, you know, don't listen to me. But then you go ahead and you write a book called Robert's Rules of Writing so clearly you want them to listen to a little bit of you. Uh, give us a little background on, on why you decided to kind of write this book, because when you kind of told it off air, it's actually a pretty funny story of why you decided to write this. Um, yeah, I mean, I, Robert's Rules of Writing was my reaction to, you know, speaking at a hundred different writers' conferences and conventions and on panels all the time, and I would get a lot of the same uh -huh. questions all the time. You know, and I thought, maybe I should just, like, put all the answers into this book and, and another book I wrote called Writer Tells All, uh, which was called Insider Secrets to Getting Your Book Published. Writer Tells All, which we haven't talked about, but that was a book that followed the entire progress of a book from you sitting up in the dead of night going, hey, what if I could write a book about that, to the moment that it finally is over. In fact, the subtitle of that book, Writer Tells All, was originally From Bright Idea to Bargain Bin. And the publisher wouldn't let me have that because they said it's too depressing. But I said, it's not, because that's the normal trajectory of a book. It, if you don't wind up in a bargain bin someplace, it probably means they didn't print enough copies. There were more people out there willing to buy it if only they'd been able to. Um, in Robert's Rules of Writing, it was, it was just a bunch of things that I thought people keep asking in which I am going to finally address so I don't have to do it again. And it was also because, and I think this is what you're alluding to, um, I got so annoyed. I'm on kind of a quota system. When I write, I don't necessarily write all that many hours a day. I'm a very lazy guy. Um, so I usually have like a 1,000-word quota. Once I've got a 1,000 words in the day, if I want to knock off, I can knock off. Some days okay. if it's going well, I'll keep writing. But 1,000 words is like four pages. So that's about as much as I feel capable of. But I had these friends who were always telling me, hey, man, did you get your quota today? Because I wrote 3,000 words. But what they were saying was they wrote 3,000 words in their journal. 
And what they wrote about was how delicious the cinnamon bun was at Starbucks that morning, or how not, you know, how hot the coffee was, or how cute the girl was who was sitting across the way, and how she noticed him. And and I thought, writing stream of consciousness, just writing down a bunch of words, is not writing. What's what makes writing hard is not the scribbling part; it's the thinking part. And at the end of the day, I'd rather have. 300 really good words that make sense and convey meaning right. than having 3,000 words about, you know, just random things that will go through my head. So that became rule number one in Robert's Rules of Writing was burn your journal. And another one was throw away your thesaurus. I'm just trying to remember these offhand. Because I, mm-hmm. I think if the word is not in your normal vocabulary, don't use it. It's going to stick out. And I can always tell writers who've been using a thesaurus too much because there's suddenly these kind of $10 words that are studying a sentence where they otherwise wouldn't be, yep. you know, and, and they, they stick out. It's, it's, as much, it's like those info dumps where the writer has dumped all of his research. And you don't ever want to do anything that calls the reader out, that makes him stop and notice something like that. My feeling is you just want the reader to move along on the tide of your prose. And the writers I really love, you know, People like you know, Tom Parada, for instance, or um, Jane Smiley, when you're reading their stuff, you're just reading along for the story, and, you, and it looks effortless. It looks effortless, but the more effortless it looks, the harder it is to do that. Michael Lewis can do it, too. Uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, Amazon Publishing, since you're with them now. Sure. Um, do you like them? Has your readership increased? And um most of the mystery thrillers tend to be with Thomas and Mercer, and you're with uh, 47 North. So just a yes. um, general question about that stuff. Um, yeah, it, it's a huge topic, and I get asked this a lot. Um, because it, it, to me, it's like jumping the digital divide. It's crossing the Rubicon. I mean, I have been published by the quote-unquote legacy houses, which is you know the term of art for it. You know, Random House, Simon & Schuster, Putnam's, you know, all of those for years and years. Um and it was at my agent's urging that she said, you know, do you want to think about being published by an Amazon-owned imprint, in this case, 47 North? And I think I ended up there because she knew an editor there, or I had an editor who was there. Oh, in fact, that's it. An editor who had, used, who had previously worked at Random House was at 47 North when I first went there. That's how I wound up over there, I think. Um, but to be honest with you guys, I, I, I went kicking and screaming. I just – I thought – I can't, I can't bear it. I mean, I'm, my whole goal in life since I was seven, you know, was like to have hardcover fancy books sitting on a shelf and published by, you know, Bennett Serf's Random House or whatever. You know, that was that was to me the end game. And I thought, I don't know to be published by an Amazon imprint. What does that mean? What is that like? And all I can say is, it's been great. It has hugely increased my readership. It has increased my accessibility. Um, they have been fabulous. I mean, I don't want to make this sound like an ad, an ad for them, but I mean, they've been great to work with. I mean, they. Uh, I'm still working with in the same editors, the same quality of editors I worked with any place else, um, and uh, you know, they care just as much about their books. They publish their lists, you know, spring and fall and stuff, just as the traditional houses do. Um, but they've done away with, as we know, a lot of you know the the brick and mortar overhead. Though I know now they're starting to build stores here and there. Um, 
You know, the disadvantages for a writer, I think, it, it depends on what you're in it for. If if all you want is the glory of seeing your book at the fancy bookstores and all, which I, I lived for, I'm not knocking that, um, you don't get that it. so much. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it. a lot of, you would knock it? <laughs> oh, yeah, I do knock I mean, it all the time. And 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 we and we published and I try to tell people yeah we, we yeah we can print your book and you can do all this work and you can have all this fun and I'll send you twenty copies and you can sit there and talk to twenty people at a book signing and have a lot of fun doing that or you can spend a couple hours on a computer a day you know you know maybe two days a week and do some marketing and do some stuff and sell two thousand copies what would you rather do yeah yeah no it, it's it's it, there's a question of yep. you know glory versus the money. And I, and frankly, I'd had the glory. I mean, I'd been able to walk into bookstores on Fifth Avenue in New York when I lived there and say, "There, there's my book." And then I could come back three weeks later and go, "There, there's my book." Still there. <laughs> still, still there. It kills me when I walk into bookstores now. I did this recently. I walked into a bookstore and I was so happy. I saw two copies of of one of my books on their shelves. I took them down and I would signed them both. <laughs> you know, like two years ago. Uh, here they still are. I guess they just can't bear to part with them. But, um, yeah. yeah, in terms of, you know, reaching people and finding your audience, I mean, uh, the legacy houses are at a huge disadvantage there. They don't know yeah. where your readers are. They don't know how to reach them because, among other things, nope. they don't want to pay for ads in book sections of newspapers. Second, there are almost no book sections left in newspapers. So how do you find your readers? And, and Amazon, of course, has the algorithms, has the information. They know who your readers are, and they know how to find them for you. Which and is, they know how to know, let them know that you have the newest thing out right now because it's like then you're going to get the email. And, the, you know, and all somebody has to do on the Amazon is pretty much click on your book. You're going to get an email the next day that says, hey, this book is still available for you if you want it. And you're like, oh, that's right. I was looking at that. Yes, Same exactly. Stupid. And and I and and I again I'm a dinosaur. I mean I came to all of this stuff really late and I don't think I started really reading on, you know, a, a paper white Kindle Paperwhite or the Amazon tablet until maybe two years ago, a year and a half ago I got like the tablet. And um there are books that I still buy as physical books because I know I'm gonna want to mark them up a lot and I know that's a book I wanna keep on my shelf forever, possibly for research. But Oh, my God. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. It's just the, the miracle of being lying in your bed and suddenly going, oh, here's a collection of the collected stories of Sheridan Le Fanu, you know, who wrote these wonderful ghost stories. And it's free if I click this button, and I can have yeah. it in 10 seconds. And I did. Yeah. That, that, yeah. that, to me, is a miracle. Just like you can, just like right now, Robert Louis Stevenson, Jekyll and Hyde, you can get it for free. It's public domain. Click on it. You don't have to buy it. Just get it for free. Yeah, and I decided to really spring for it. I went, and for $2.99, $2. $2. $2. $2. $2. $2. $2. $2. $2. yeah, but for two ninety nine, I got everything Robert Louis Stevenson ever wrote. There was like some offer, right. like all of his essays, all of his letters, and I could carry I it with too. me. I, yeah, yeah, I mean, you yeah. go to – Yeah, I think I did I that, walk I think I did that for – I did the same thing for Arthur Conan Doyle and Edgar Allan Poe. I think I think I only spent a buck ninety nine, and I got everything. Yeah, and you can carry it around with you anywhere you go. Anytime I mean, I used want. to go to the coffee shops, you know, sometimes, or or on a vacation or a trip. If I was working on something, you'd be carrying five pounds of heavy books in your bag, and you'd never have the one no. you wanted. And no. then now I think, God, I can carry it all with me in my in my Kindle. Yeah. It's I don't know. well, Robert. 
I mean, we want to thank you so much for coming on. We're running up here at the end of the time. The hour has flown by. We can't thank you enough for joining us and just talking. Great conversation, um, of course, about your latest book, The Jekyll Revelation, along with everything you've written, even your nonfiction stuff. So everybody make sure you go to robertmasello.com, M-A-S-E-L-L-O.com, for more information on all of your works. And again, Robert, thanks so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Can't wait to see what you got coming up in the future. Um, and we'll talk with you soon. Okay, great. And thank you guys again for having me on. I really, I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Okay. So, Jeff, here we are at the end of another great episode. Boy, we didn't know we were going to keep on an hour, but I'll tell you, that was fascinating conversation. And we probably could have kept going because um it, it was just it was a great interview oh absolutely yeah we could have kept going for hours and hours so yeah thank you robert that was a blast yes it was so we'll be back here um what do we got next week or two weeks from now and then it's our last show uh, of the next year, right? week uh next yeah week. i think so yeah i think that's week. our last show of the year because we're going to take december off oh my goodness yeah Something like uh, we have I author think, jeff yeah, marriott yeah that's right so we got that so Make sure everybody look for that. So until then, Jeff, it's always a pleasure, my man. See you next time. Thanks so much. Have fun. Keep reading. Yep, keep reading. Bye-bye.